0: Good morning. I'm Chris and I'm here to talk about Bitcoin. But before I go any further, I work in crypto. These views are my own, not my company's. This talk is for informational purposes only. It's not legal or financial advice. Please, and I really mean this, follow all the relevant laws. Uh, Your activities with crypto are being tracked. The case I want to make today is very simple. The money that runs the world is totally and hopelessly broken. It's a game, but it's a very bad game cryptocurrencies let us create better games of money, and Bitcoin is the best one we have. The good thing about this claim is that we're going to find out soon if it's right. The whole world is running a crazy macroeconomic experiment right in front of us. This cannot go on, so it won't. Something's going to take its place. I want to start with a quote from Hayek in a 1984 interview. I don't believe we shall ever have a good money again before we take the thing out of the hands of the government. That is, we can't take it violently, out of the hands of government, all we can do is, by some sly, roundabout way, introduce something they can't stop. Bitcoin might be exactly that solution. But to establish that money today is bad, we're going to go through these steps. One, let's define money. What does it mean that money is a game? Two, let's survey some actual games of money, highlighting their strengths and weaknesses. We'll look at rye stones, metals, fiat, and Bitcoin. Finally, let's lay out the current monetary chessboard, highlighting how cryptocurrency can outcompete other games of money. So first, defining our terms. Uh, There's a classic definition for money that everyone's probably heard. One, it's a medium of exchange. It's something we can use in commerce as an improvement over barter between other goods directly. Two, it's a store of value. It holds its own value with respect to other goods over time so that if I decide not to use the money today and save it for tomorrow, it's still useful. Three, it's a unit of account. Uh, it has a numerical value so we can use it to price other goods with respect to money. Also, that numerical value needs to be stable. <clears throat> so anything that excels at all three of those requirements would definitely qualify as money. But in fact, all the monies we're going to look at today do not meet all of those requirements well. So this is an ideal. Another way to look at money is how it's created. And outside money is something that can be dug up or mined or created in its own right, where if you sum up all of the credits and debits, you get some positive value. Examples of these would be like gold, stocks, or if you wanted to use them, wheels of cheese. Uh, and inside money is a thing that is borrowed. It's a credit that circulates. And because credit and debit cancel each other out, uh, the net value of assets involved is zero. So an example of that would be a loan from a bank. Uh, all the monies we're going to look at today are outside monies for the most part. Another way to look at monies is the metaphor that we can use for them. Really, they're not a given individual thing, they're a class of different things. But I wanna talk about how different economic schools think about them. So to modern monetary theorists like Stephanie Kelton, money is a flexible tool in the hands of a competent state. They really see markets not as their own self-originating phenomenon, but something that only exists due to the protection of the state. So to them, the state sort of has the moral license or imperative to manage money on the market's behalf. Uh, Of course, modern monetary theory is pretty popular these days because it says that you can print as much money as you like so long as you don't cause inflation, Uh, but we'll leave it there because I think it's absurd. Uh, The Austrian economists have a different look or perspective on money. Let's highlight three things they mention. From Rothbard, uh, money is a special commodity that emerges gradually as people discover that some good traded on the market is widely demanded, divisible, and durable. The way to think about this is it's sort of a hypothetical thought experiment where people start bartering, and as they barter and move goods back and forth, they're going to discover that some last longer than others and are more widely valued, and those bartered goods will gradually take on moneyness or desirability for use as a medium of exchange. As Rothbard says, but the only way this can happen is by beginning with a useful commodity under barter. Uh, The second key point here is it doesn't matter what the supply of money is. Uh, You can imagine a thought experiment where you double the total quantity of monetary references globally. Uh, What was $1 is now $2. A debt of $1 is now a debt of $2. So the numbers would have doubled for everyone in the world, but nobody would be any better or worse off. And in that sense, money is just a reference, a tool for tracking who owns what productive present or future goods. So changing the number of references doesn't change the goods at all. Finally, Money has a price. So we're used to valuing other goods with respect to a unit of account or money, but you can also flip that around and take that money and value it by the number of goods that it will buy. Now that price of money is not necessarily stable over time. And there's a couple ways it can change. So one is as Hayek says, an increase in the supply of money will tend to lower its price. An increase in the demand for money will raise it. The price of money can be affected by the supply of money, but it can also be affected by how people feel or value money subjectively. We saw this last March in the middle of the economic crisis. Uh, the price for many goods simultaneously dropped precipitously in March because all the market participants decided that they'd rather hold dollars than the goods. Okay, so there's a couple ways that the price of money can change. Uh, but no matter how you think of money, I wanna highlight a couple ethical principles that I believe it must follow. So first, money needs to be fair. As Proverbs 10.20 says, diverse weights and diverse measures, they are both alike an abomination to the Lord. Uh, This is a pretty universal rule. It's fairly easy to apply this rule, say, to actual shekels of silver. Uh, If I'm engaging in a transaction, everyone in the transaction should be able to understand accurately what the shekel or weight of silver is so that they don't get shortchanged. Um, It's actually a lot harder to apply that rule to designing new monies when we can change things like the issuance rate, who can create it, who cannot, who can redeem it, and so on but we'll try. Uh, The second principle I want to highlight is freedom. So Western civilization has learned through long study to uphold the rights of the individual because we understand that the individual has intrinsic value. Now at this point, uh, it's clear we're rapidly losing respect for individual rights amongst ourselves and our geopolitical competitors have far fewer qualms about overt oppression. As Nick Carter says, if cash were invented today, it would be illegal. So money is a game, it's a game with rules. There are both the underlying moral principles behind the game and there are the rules internal to the game. The game is for people. All the games of money we're going to discuss are designed by people and used by people. And in a very real sense, all money exists only inside the mind of people playing the game. It is the choice to play the game that makes the money money. So now let's look at some games. Uh, the first one is rice Stones. So these are big stones made out of aragonite, which is a type of sparkly limestone. Um, They're carved sort of to look like a Flintstones car wheel and they were used as money in Indonesia on the island of Yap. They were actually mined on a different Indonesian island, Palau, and then transported about 250 miles to the island of Yap. These expeditions to create the rye stones would take years and they were very dangerous. Um, And so let me describe a little bit about how this worked because it's really unusual. So a visitor, William Henry Furness III, visited the islands around 1900, and here's what he said. It is not necessary for its owner to reduce it to possession. After concluding a bargain, which involves the price of a rye too large to be conveniently moved, its new owner is quite content to accept the bare acknowledgement of ownership, and without so much as a mark to indicate the exchange, the coin remains undisturbed on the former owner's premises. So this probably sounds like a terrible form of money, but it illustrates a couple key principles. One, it's a game. There's no natural law that makes anyone carve rhinestones. Two, the game pieces are physical, but the game itself, the game scores, are held in the collective memory of the players. Uh, And that actually works pretty well, in a small island where word gets around quickly. Uh, And it was actually a pretty good game because the rhinestones were hard to make and they had to be transported a long distance, so they were scarce. If you held a rhinestone, you could trust that that rhinestone would still be valuable in the future. That is, of course, until some enterprising visitors came up with steam equipment and started manufacturing uh, the actual rye stones. So uh, at first, rye stones were a good medium of exchange because they could be exchanged orally, which is actually a pretty cool principle. Uh, They were a tolerable unit of account. Uh, There were thousands of these stones, but you can imagine making change for an individual purchase might have been a little challenging. And they were a poor store of value, eventually, because they were inflated away by people who manufactured them. So the Bank of Canada actually still has a rhinestone in its reserve, but I don't think it's coming back anytime soon as a global reserve currency. So let's move on to metalism, specifically gold coins. Now, I want to touch only briefly on metals because I think we all know how they work pretty well. Ideally, the sovereign creates a specific quantity of gold and they call it a coin and they keep it that way. The best time that ever happened, I think, was the Roman solidus, which later was the Byzantine Byzant. It was introduced by Emperor Constantine in 312 AD at about 4.5 grams of gold, and it held that weight, dropping only to about 4 grams of gold over the next 700 years, until it was debased by a Byzantine emperor, Michael IV, in 1034. So, if gold coins are issued by a trustworthy ruler, they work great. And the problem is that typically, rulers run into some kind of short-term financial distress, classically paying for soldiers. Uh, And their natural alternative is to debase the currency, literally to put less precious metal into the coins. Uh, That's sort of a universal pattern that's occurred. And so what I'm going to say next, I think might be the most frustrating or controversial point I have, uh, because great conservatives like Ron Paul have advocated a return to the gold standard for a long time. Uh, But they're wrong. Gold is dead, and it's not coming back anytime soon as a reserve currency. And the reason for that is, if you think to what happened in 2020, uh, all of commerce is turned digital, Uh, you can't email gold. And so as a crazy example of this, Venezuela has a broken oil refinery, and they've had to pay Iran in 2020, nine tons of gold to get it fixed. Uh, But to do that, they literally had to fly airliners filled with gold across the world. Uh, That is not a great way to run commerce. Now, even when you get the gold, it's hard to verify. Uh, If you get a gold bar or a gold coin, I mean, I've seen these things, fake gold coins look real. Uh, the only way to tell them apart is with an XRF spectrometer, which I don't have, and I'm guessing nobody else here has either. So you fall back on either trusting somebody who's verified the gold or trusting a custodian who's given you a paper or digital receipt for the gold. Um, but now that we're trusting this custodian to hold the thing for us, uh, we can look at the history of how that's turned out. So historically, that trust has very rarely been justified. Let's look at the example of the US dollar itself, which as recently as 1913, was totally backed by gold, like a regular currency. So let's go through the history here. The U.S. dollar has gradually shifted from a gold-backed currency to pure fiat. So the Fed was created around 1913. Uh, We had a traditional gold currency, but Executive Order 6102 in 1933 changed that. And so what was going on is the Fed had a crisis. Uh, They wanted to print more U.S. dollars because we were in the middle of an economic depression. The problem was there was a legally mandated 40% limit on what the Federal Reserve had to have in gold. Uh, So they decided to just take everybody's gold and then they could print more dollars. So this caused the price of gold to go from $20.67 to $35 an ounce very quickly. Later on, uh, after the U.S helped win World War II, uh, we started Bretton Woods. Uh, And this is a really interesting monetary arrangement because nominally it was still gold backed. So this is from 1944 to 1971, gold was nominally kept at $35 an ounce. The US dollar was the reserve currency of the world. And what that meant essentially is we won the war, we had the biggest economy, we set the rules, and we decided that anyone in the world who had paper fiat currency from another government could redeem it for gold but they had to be an institution. This wasn't for individuals because our gold was still seized. And that redemption of paper fiat currency for gold had to flow through the US dollar. So this kind of let us have our cake and eat it too. We could claim that uh, each dollar was backed by gold and we could print as many dollars as we liked without immediately affecting the price because the whole world needed dollars for their reserve currency to transact with each other. Uh, What happened though, is we gradually started losing gold as people preferred to hold the actual gold rather than the dollars. So the Federal Gold Reserve dropped from 20,000 tons to 8,000 tons. Uh, we, We ran into a trade deficit problem, essentially where the rest of the world needed dollars because they were using them to transact with each other. And so we had to give them dollars. Now, eventually this caused a crisis. And so the link to gold was completely severed. Uh, around 1971 and so now we had a totally fiat system and the price of gold moved quickly from $35 an ounce then to $1,850 an ounce now. So we'll get into the petrodollar more in a second but I just want to highlight one thing here. Uh, Gold as money is done. Uh, Central governments don't want the restrictions of having to back their dollars with gold. Uh, Nobody can force them to put themselves back into a straitjacket. They have much more interest in printing as many dollars as they like, according to modern monetary theory. And even if we could force them to do it, we'd be relying on trust again. And governments and private parties have not earned that trust. So I don't believe we're going back to gold. Let's talk about the petrodollar. So after the link between the US dollar and gold totally disappeared in 1971, essentially uh, foreign countries could no longer, nobody could any longer redeem their US dollars for gold. So the 1970s was a a period of high inflation. It was sort of a crisis of confidence in the US dollar. Now the petrodollar was a really creative solution. We needed to find some way to keep the world using dollars. So we came up with an agreement with Saudi Arabia and decided that they, and eventually the rest of OPEC, would sell oil in US dollars only. And in exchange, we provided international security using our incredibly powerful Navy. So at this point, uh, the U.S. dollar and the rest of the global financial system is backed by oil and aircraft carriers. And I mean that literally. Um, but this system is not working well for anyone. The rest of the world still needs U.S. dollars to trade. That's great for the U.S. Um, because we can essentially make dollars out of thin air uh, either as paper which costs 4 cents a bill or we can print them electronically uh, and then we get real actual goods like microprocessors uh, in exchange for our magic money. Uh, it's really bad for the U.S. though as well. So. Before we were on the petrodollar, when we were on Bretton Woods, we were gradually losing uh, our gold reserves as the world demanded our dollars. Uh, Now that we're on the petrodollar, we're gradually losing our manufacturing reserves. And what I mean by that is the US dollar is really expensive now. And so that makes American manufacturing really uncompetitive with the rest of the world. And that's exactly what we've seen. Uh, The most profitable countries or companies have outsourced most of their manufacturing to other countries. So this system is one that cannot go on as it's currently created. And to understand that in more detail, I highly recommend Lynn Alton's article called The Fraying of the US Global Currency Reserve System. I recommend reading it, and it'll give you basically a prediction for how the next decade or two is going to play out. So let's take a step back and look at how the petrodollar measures up to some of our other monies. Well, it's a great unit of account. Uh, Everyone can price things in dollars, and we do that mostly around the world. It's an okay medium of exchange. It works for you and I, but if you happen to be another country that is disfavored by the U.S. financial system, then it's very hard to move money back and forth because we purposefully use the U.S. dollar as a weapon and we kick whole countries out of global commerce. It's also a terrible store of long-term value because if you look at the price of gold going from $35 to $1,850 an ounce, that is not a good way to store value. So the US dollar is going to end its status as a reserve currency. That's very clear. Uh, this is something that's happened many times um, to other countries. And there's a regular pattern that reserve currencies go through where there's a new world order, like was clear with when the US helped win World War II and was dominant in terms of trade. Uh, you eventually have peace and prosperity. You have a debt bubble and inequality. That bubble bursts. Things fail. You print money you have chaos, and then finally you end up with a new world order. Uh, It's very clear that the stage we're in right now is one of chaos. And if you wanna understand more about how that cycle is going to play out, I highly recommend Ray Dalio, who has a couple great free online books. One is called The Big Debt Crisis, another is called The Changing World Order. So here's some concrete evidence that this order is crumbling right now. Uh, First is Instex, which is essentially a money capacitor allowing Europe and Iran to transact uh, without actually moving any dollars through US banks. They're doing that to get around our trade restrictions. Uh, Also, if you look at trade between Russia and India and Russia and China, uh, it's very clear that the percentage of trades that are occurring in US dollars are dropping precipitously. So if the petrodollar is held up by the fact that it's used internationally for trade and that's changing, that's a problem for the petrodollar. Finally, uh, the US is simply put bankrupt. Uh, There's no way we're going to pay off all of the value represented by our current obligations. Now we can pay off the actual dollars represented by our obligations by hyperinflating them, but that's a totally different thing entirely. So the global world order of the global reserve currency is going to change. It's not gonna be the US dollar indefinitely. Let's move on to talk about cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin. Bitcoin is an electronic network for transmitting internally defined value. The white paper for Bitcoin was released by Satoshi Nakamoto on October 31st, 2008, and it was entitled, Bitcoin, a peer-to-peer electronic cash system. Now, I'm not going to go into a lot of the technical details. We can save that for the Q&A, but I want to summarize Bitcoin like this. Uh, Bitcoin is built on a couple key philosophical principles. One is decentralization. Uh, We want to get rid of trusted third parties or centralized services because they're security holes time and time again. Other forms of money that depend on them have failed. Uh, The key saying to remember this principle is, not your keys, not your coins. Next, Bitcoin is cryptographic. Rather than depending on trusted third parties, we depend on math and cryptography. Uh, It uses digital signatures to sign messages, and that's what allows you to hold a private key, which represents ownership of an asset on chain. When you sign a message, you're allowing the asset to be transferred on chain to another party. We can talk about that more uh, in the Q&A. It also uses hashes, which are essentially a form of digital work like flipping a coin. So uh, Bitcoin is supported by hashes in the sense that these hashes are very, very expensive. You know, I think it's a couple exahashes hashes per second that are being used for Bitcoin right now. Um, so around the world, a ton of energy is being spent on this fairly useless cryptographic hashing, but it, it allows us to solve a key problem And that's resolving contradictory transactions or double spends. All you have to do in Bitcoin, rather than reaching consensus with the other participants manually or uh, going to some other authority to determine which of the contradictory transactions you'll choose, you simply choose the transaction with the most economic energy expended supporting it. So that simple rule solves a lot of fundamental problems that other digital currencies run into. Uh, So finally, Bitcoin is deflationary. So there's a block that's made about every 10 minutes. Uh, the block can fit about 2,000 transactions in it. Miners creating these hashes are rewarded when they randomly guess the right hash. Uh, they're rewarded with Bitcoin. It used to be 10 bit, or 50 Bitcoin per block and then that is cut in half every, every 210,000 blocks. So uh, it was 50 Bitcoin per block and then about four years later it dropped to 25 Bitcoin per block and then 12.5, and so on. Now, if we look at what's happened with Bitcoin over the past decade, uh, it's actually surprising that it hasn't failed. Instead, it survived some crazy bugs, big community community divisions, lots of economic turmoil, and it's currently near all-time highs at around $34,000 at the time I'm saying this. Now, the price history is super chaotic, but if you zoom out and you look on a logarithmic scale, you'll see a pretty regular pattern. One, there's growing adoption. So all the people claiming it's a bubble have been wrong every year since around 2011. Two, there are price spikes. And if you correlate those with when the halving occurs, the price spikes occur roughly a year after each halving. And that kind of makes sense because if the demand for Bitcoin were to remain constant and the supply is reduced during a halving event, then naturally uh, the price that new participants would have to pay to get Bitcoin is going to go up. So the last halving was in May 2011, 2020, and so currently, we're in the middle of a price spike after halving, the timing kind of makes sense. I also need to point out that at this point, uh, the U.S. government has fairly favorable crypto regulation. Now, they have a lot of bad laws in general, but they've been reasonably fair with how they treat crypto compared to legacy finance. Uh, So it's going to be very, very hard for any given government or central bank regulator to inflate or control The quantity of Bitcoin or the rules of the network, uh, because that's totally decentralized. It doesn't depend on any central authority at all. Uh, One caveat here, though, is that Bitcoin is not cash. Uh, That's not the right analogy for it. It's much more like digital gold. And the reason Bitcoin cannot be cash is that it can only fit about three to five transactions a second. That's about 2,000 transactions per 10 minute block. Uh, The reason for that is each transaction requires computational work to verify bandwidth and time to communicate between nodes, and storage space to hold indefinitely. Now, if you compare three to five transactions per second uh, to Visa, Visa can do tens of thousands of transactions per second, and Bitcoin simply cannot compete. There's some people who are naively trying to by just putting bigger blocks on the network. There are a whole host of economic and scientific reasons why that's a dumb idea. We can go into that in the Q&A, but essentially it's not gonna work. Uh, To actually build electronic cash, will need to build higher order or layer two systems on top of Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies. And if, if you think about how central banks did this, or actually any commercial bank, you'd have the actual asset, the gold in a vault, and then the bank would issue you a paper or electronic receipt to represent your ownership of that gold. And then that receipt can move around a lot more easily than the gold. So we can do the same thing with Bitcoin and other crypto assets. The caveat here being, that rather than just trusting the bank for to say they have it, we can actually use cryptography to verify that they have it. So how does Bitcoin really score as a money right now? Uh, it's really kind of an unusual hybrid of other types of currency. It's like rhinestones in that there's a shared ledger of who owns what, except this time it's on computer memory instead of human memory. Uh, it's like gold in that it's hard to forge. Uh, if you wanna get Bitcoin, you either have to mine it yourself, which is very difficult, or you have to buy it at the market price. It's like fiat in the sense that there's nothing behind it. There's no other asset backing it up. But I want to go back to our central point that money is a game. And to be frank, there does not need to be anything backing up a game. If people choose that it's a good game and they decide to play it. And finally, Bitcoin is really the first native currency of the internet. It is value that can transmit electronically. And if you think about how much commerce takes place on the internet, that makes perfect sense. So far, Bitcoin has proven to be a really good store of value. It is probably the best-performing asset of the last decade. It's a tolerable medium of exchange. It has the issues of not being cash that we mentioned, but you can use it to buy things. And we believe that Layer 2 solutions or other types of cryptocurrency improvements will solve some of those issues around day-to-day cash needs. It is a poor unit of account because it's extremely volatile. Now, it might get better at that in the future. Uh, We'll have to wait and see. Uh, The last caveat here is that Rather than calling it digital gold, although that's a good analogy, it's it's honestly more like a call option on a future potential digital gold. And the reason is that gold's market cap is give or take $10 trillion, and Bitcoin's is around $0. 0.6 trillion. Gold has thousands of years of pretty impressive history, where, you know, except for the debasement, which usually occurred, uh, the, the atom itself, right? You can trust gold. You know what it is. Uh, Bitcoin, Bitcoin only has a single decade behind it. So, If Bitcoin is adopted, uh, then we'd expect its total market cap to increase. And maybe when it's about the same size as gold, then you could call it fairly a digital gold. Until then, it might be a call option on gold to be precise. Now, I want to step back and make a couple of predictions because we've looked at the future and we've looked at, sorry, we've we've looked at some other types of money and we've seen, it's probably not going to be rhinestones. It's probably not going to be gold or the petrodollar that is the currency of the future. So it's either going to be crypto, things like Bitcoin, or CBDCs. Now, CBDC is a central bank digital currency. Mm -hmm. Um, Sorry about that. Uh, Mark Carney, the former governor of the Bank of England, said this in 2019 about CBDCs. It is an open question whether such new synthetic hegemonic currency would be best provided by the public sector. Perhaps through a network of central bank digital currencies. An SHC, or synthetic hegemonic currency, could dampen the domineering influence of the US dollar on global trade. So a CBDC is not a cryptocurrency. It's much more like a centralized bank ledger that banks already operate. Uh, the difference, though, is that it provides more identification or surveillance and more control. So this is essentially uh, fiat central bankers last hope to continue control of the global monetary system, whether it's a US dollar represented as a CBDC or a basket of currencies, more like the Bancor proposal. Um, the goal is to see more about what's going on and control more, because frankly, those two things are necessary for fiat currency to remain a viable option. Here's what Augustine Karstens said. He's the general manager of the Bank of International Settlements, and he said this in his speech yesterday, January 27th, called Digital Currencies in the Future of the Monetary System. I argue that we will end up with central bank digital currencies with some element of identification, that is, with primarily account-based access. So, just to use money itself, they want to know who you are, uh, just to allow that. Uh, And this sounds a little bit dystopian, but according to this same speech, 86% of central banks are currently engaged in work on CBDCs. Now, one of them, of course, is the the People's Bank of China. It's working on DCEP, which is called the digital currency for electronic payment. This is a pilot that's been going on since around 2014. It's in several cities. It has lots of companies collaborating, and of course, it's all about surveillance and control. So clearly, this is a dystopian outcome for the future. You know, the petrodollar is not a good thing, uh, but CBDCs are far, far worse, and. If we're looking to avoid a disturbing outcome like this, crypto is the most likely alternative. Let's get back to the fact that we're playing a game of money. We can choose how to construct that game. We should construct a game that is fair and that is free. Bitcoin is a fair game of outside money. It's scarce. You have to mine it or buy it. It requires very little trust for other players. Anyone can play and nobody can unilaterally change the rules. So when you look at the other games out there right now, it really is the best game of money we have. And that might be good enough. Thank you.